Hi, Steve Adubato here. This is the Steve Adubato, you know this by now, Steve Adubato Leadership Hour. They keep saying my name, but the truth is the reason the Leadership Hour works is because we talk to other leaders who know a heck of a lot more than I do, and one of them's right here in the studio. This is Mary Gamba, who is the co-host of the Leadership Hour. I thought you were going to say that we're changing the name to the Steve Adubato and Mary Gamba Leadership Hour for 2019. I thought that's where you were going. I got my heart rate up. I was super excited, but that's okay. Why don't you check yourself right now? All right. I mean, don't be ridiculous. You are the glue. That's you true. are the thing that keeps it together. But come yes. on, I'm the brand. You are the brand. Absolutely. <laughs> Speaking enough. of brand, can go I ahead. do some plugs? Is that all right? Is give it... me some. Pl- you mean hair plugs or? <laughs> What are you going to go with that? Uh, I'm not even going to touch that one. Absolutely. So first of all, I think that anyone listening would want to know where they can follow you and learn more great leadership and communication tips and tools. That's right on Facebook, Steve Adubato, PhD, and that's A-D-U-B-A-T-O on Twitter, Steve Adubato, and also on our website where we have tons of valuable articles and clips and everything else, and that is stand-deliver.com. And from our website, they could also find out how to subscribe to the podcast. So if you like what you hear on the radio here on AM 970, you could then subscribe on Apple iTunes as well as on Google Play. Can they purchase this incredibly compelling book called Lessons in Leadership by Steve Adubato on the website? Can they do that? They can do that right there. They could email me. My email is marygamba at AOL.com is the easiest way to reach me. And they can email me directly to purchase a copy. Um, It's also available on Amazon as well. So tons of different ways to get it. But there's free stuff as well. And we be promoting the entire half hour as we're doing? I was going to see how long we could go before we switched (laughs) gears. It, It just feels so natural. I mean, so many years working together the uh, branding leadership but we have an important subject to discuss with a young lady who it's interesting when you've led for or tried to lead for as many years as I have been trying to lead first as a student leader in college and then uh, running for the state legislature at 24 turning 25 years of age getting elected and then losing two years later and trying to build a campaign <laughs> a whole and, other lesson there yeah right and then just building this other company and teaching, writing. And one of the things I learned about leadership is when your first job as a leader is to look for talented future leaders, people who have something special. Nicole Swinerton, who I know we're talking about you behind your back, Nicole. By the way, say hello. Hi, everyone. What did we say about Nicole when we first saw her before we start talking about millennials? Oh, God, I hate that term. Younger people and leadership and motivating them. And what did we see in her? So that people know why the heck she's on the leadership yeah, hour. Yeah, we have been very blessed, really. And that's one topic that we never really touched on. A lot of people come to us and say, oh, we're looking for a talented individual to come and work <laughs> for our team. And I think one of the best ways that we have found is through word of mouth, through others, rather than, say, putting out a listing. And Nicole came to us from someone that we knew, one of our partners. She, was gra- our... she graduated from Seton Hall University. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, we have a great relationship. Yeah. And uh, when Nicole came in for the interview, like we do so many times when people say, hey, you know, I have someone, you know, can you bring them <laughs> in? And Steve and I just kind of nod and say, OK. How many seconds do... in do we know that he or she's not the one? Uh, almost instantaneously, yep. sometimes even before he or she comes in the door because phone of time. phone time or email or lack thereof. And Nicole really just from the first email correspondence and telephone correspondence was just a class act and very professional. And that's why she's here today in the studio with us. And I do hate the word millennials. I hope it's we get away word. from that in 2019. I think that it really tries to put this age group, mm. whatever it may be defined by these days, into a bucket. And I don't think it's fair. And to be clear, Nicole is one of the top producers on our team. We have other very talented, younger producers as well. 
But not only is she a great producer for our public broadcasting and Fios programming and digital programming, but she understands marketing and social media and a whole bunch of other things. And in my view, and Mary's your natural-born leader, so I'm going to put you on the spot and ask this. Nicole, where did you learn, where do you think you learned the essence of what we're calling leadership? Well, first of all, thank you for both of your kind words. I appreciate it. And I've learned so much from both of you from working for Caucus for a while now. I would say that... You know, my parents definitely instilled in me, always try to be the best, always try to do well in school. And that has always just resonated with me mostly. I always have strived for perfect grades and always wanted to do I'm the sorry, best. did you say perfect? <laughs> perfect. Mary and I don't perfect relate grades. to uh, that in grades, but go ahead. <laughs> yes, I, um, I'm definitely a perfectionist when it comes to school. So I think that that has always just been a part of who I am. And I think also, I mean, maybe it's simple, but I have a younger brother, so I've always felt, you know. And you look out for him, don't you? Of course. And most older siblings do the same thing. But I think that that has always made me want to be a leader anyway. So that kind of corresponds to trying to take on some leadership roles in my professional life, too. But what's interesting about this, and Mary and I have had this conversation behind your back, so we might as well have it here. <laughs> and it's not really just about Nicole. It's about, I mean, Nicole actually sent us an article this morning on millennial burnout, if you will. And we'll keep using that term until it's out of the, our vernacular. But I am curious about this. We've interviewed a lot of leaders on this program and in our, in our work and stand and deliver our leadership development company where managers, let's just say who, and leaders who are older, mm-hmm. will say, you know, those millennials, I don't know how to motivate them. They're different. You invest all this time and effort, then they're going to leave you anyway because they're so transient. And they don't want to work as hard as we do. They're not old school. They don't get it. they got to pay their dues. Blah, blah, blah. Nicole, go. Well, first off, I actually want to say that I have no problem with the millennial term. I actually, I'm very proud to be a millennial. I think we are a really interesting generation that has grown up in an interesting time. When I was very young, we didn't have technology like we have today. Cell phones were coming out as I was growing up. So my brother is 20 now, so he's always had technology. It's a little bit different than me growing up learning Tell about technology. I'm 25 now. So I'm actually, I am on the lower end of the, uh, the younger end of the millennial scale. I think the oldest millennials are about 30. 33. But, you know, there's so many aspects of the millennial conversation. And are I, they are <laughs> you different than by the way, I'm clearly older than Mary. Mary's older than you. Do you think we have different definitions of, quote, how hard you have to work to be a great leader? I know it's a broad question. Do you think there's any big difference? No, I think that all generations are so similar. And of course, you've grown up in different times. So that really, really impacts it. And like I said, with technology or with the economy of the world, so certain things like that, it really impacts how you grow up. But I think the people who work the hardest are going to succeed. And I just think that my generation of millennials, we've just tried to work really, really hard at so many different things for so long. And Steve, when you brought up the article about millennial burnout, I just found that so fascinating. Why? Because for my age group, Yes, we want to work hard in our jobs, but there's so much more to it. And not that it's not everybody, too, but there's so much more to it. Not only do we want to work hard to excel in our careers, but we want our careers to look really good to our friends and to our colleagues. And, well, I I need my title to look really good on LinkedIn so that my friends who I graduated with are impressed by my career. By the way, tell everyone your title with the Caucus Educational Corporation (laughs) producing great programming on on, on PBS and Fios and other digital platforms. You got promoted. Yeah, so I started out as an associate producer, and now I'm a producer. And And one day you will be a senior slash executive producer. You will be. Yes, one day. And what does that mean? Seriously, what does that mean? Yeah, so right now I, I really 
really handle a lot of segment producing. No, so, what does it mean oh. to have the title? See, you become executive producer oh. one day. What does that really mean to you? It means everything. It means that my hard work has paid off. It means that the time that I've put into it, the extra hours that I've put into it. And that's a really great segue into one of the biggest points I think is so interesting about millennials. And it's that, you know, we want flexibility. That's like one of the biggest things that people say, oh, millennials want more flexibility than they deserve in their jobs. But even when we're given that flexibility, at least for me and for a lot of my friends, you know, we still want to look better than everybody else. We want to look better than the rest. And the, that's the only way to... You're competitive. Do you think definitely. you're the... Do you, by the way, Mary, I'm sorry for interrupting. Nicole Swinerton, one of the top producers on our team, knows marketing, digital media, blah, 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 blah. We think she's a great leader of the future and a leader now. Do you think she's, dare I say, an anomaly or the norm? I would say from my experience and from the people that have come into our orbit. Um, and we've met a lot of others who aren't even in our orbit who are that age. But yeah, and I would say that, no, I think that Nicole is very accurate in describing the millennial generation, those that are on that side of the spectrum, in that they really want to succeed. They want to excel. And the challenge, and again, I guess I said it wrong before when I said I don't like the term millennial. I think sometimes there is that negative. Definitely. Because when, when the millennial term first came out, there was that very negative stereotype to millennials. And Define it was it. it was that they are self-entitled. They were coddled. They were their parents did the speaking We told up. them they were the best. Yeah, yeah. Every, at everything. Everyone gets a trophy. Everyone's special. Is. And it forced me as a parent, because now I have a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old, to say, you want to know what? You're not all that special, but that's okay. <laughs> and I mean that. You can't look at a child that is growing up in today's day and age and put them on a pedestal. You're not doing them any favors. Now, in certain cases, yes, you do put them on that pedestal, but you don't want to make them believe that when they get out in, into the real world mm. and they are working, that their boss is going to say to them every single day, you're great. You're awesome. Here is a raise just because you showed up today because okay, it's not so going to happen. Okay, so now you hit it. So, Nicole, let's do this. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you thought was going to happen when you came into the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour with Mary Gamba, but I'm going to put it on the table. Mary and I spent a lot of time talking about feedback, giving constructive, difficult to hear, important feedback that sometimes people get upset with. So do you think for you and with most, I don't know how you're supposed to answer this, with many other people of a certain age that in the workplace, getting constructive criticism slash feedback is harder because of everything Mary just said in terms of being told you are the best by your parents for a long time. I'm not saying you. Mm -hmm. Am I we onto something? I think that you are. And I, to be very honest, yes, we did yeah, grow up. Yeah, be honest on this yeah, show. No. It's a good thing. <laughs> we like honesty. My age group, of course, we grew up getting a lot of recognition for things that maybe we didn't deserve all the recognition for and just participation awards, of course. But I've even seen it myself as someone who is very competitive and really, really cares about doing well. It is still hard to get feedback, and I don't know if that's exactly why, but I said it is hard to get feedback, and it's something that I'm really why? trying to be more open-minded. Why? Because, of course, I don't want to hear criticism. Who really does? Because you want to but, get better. I'm playing devil's advocate. Right, Because right. you want to grow and get better and be the top producer, top leader, yeah. top everything. 
There is no other way, right? There's no other way. And it's so hard. And it's hard to hear. It's hard to hear criticism from anything you do. Even if you think that you just had the best project, the best outcome, no, you're still going to get criticism. And that really is the best way to grow. But it is definitely hard. Does it matter whether we call it feedback or criticism at all? (laughs) We all know what it is. Does it matter if before whatever's said, you say, with all due respect, does that actually make whatever's coming after? How about this? How about Nicole if we go... Nicole, you really did this, 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 so many things well, but when you hear the but. I actually find that is really helpful, and maybe that is just my generation, but to hear you did some of these things well, but here's where you need to improve, that's really nice. And I'm not saying that that's different for every generation. <laughs> Everybody wants to hear nice things, So, but I think that that's a great leader. So, I appreciate that in a leader. So hold on, hold on. Have there been times? When I've given you, it's interesting, we have a small organization, nine, ten people. Yeah. So there's a lot of direct communication all the way around. There are not a lot of layers, if you will. Mm-hmm. Pretty flat organization. By the way, Steve Adubato here with Mary Gamba. This is the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour. And Nicole Swinnerton's in our studio talking about younger people and leadership. Here's what I'm curious about. Have there been times when, when I've given you feedback? Because I'm trying to learn to be better at this. This isn't really about me. It's about any other leader trying to give feedback where I've given you feedback and I've told you I wasn't, this didn't meet a certain standard, or in all candor, I'll say I wasn't really pleased with X, where you have in part said to yourself, it's never going to be enough for him. I think that's actually a really good question. I would say that, yes, I've felt that before. Um, Frustrating? Certainly frustrating, but I've really tried to train myself to say that this has to be an opportunity. And if he's not happy with this yet, we can get there because I have a great team of people around me who can help me get there. How about he's wrong? I'm not sure how to answer that. <laughs> no, I'm being serious. Like sometimes you're getting feedback you don't agree with. Right, right. And? Well, you're the boss. You're the boss. Is and that in the end what it comes down to, seriously? I think that it's yeah. part of it, but at the same time, you have more experience than I do. The people above me have more experience than I do, and I have to trust that they have the vision that I'm here to support. And I think it depends on what the issue is. It depends on what the feedback is. is. If the feedback is about a certain thing that you wanted read on a background of a, because Nicole obviously handles a lot of our marketing and PR and our beautiful emails that we send out. More than um, she just handles all the e- with Laura oh, Van Bloom who leads that effort. Absolutely, she's also a great producer who books. She can do anything. And she yeah. can do anything. So go ahead. Absolutely. What feedback is constructive, and what is it like? It's not about me, about any mm-hmm. leader, but in this case, me. Just like having some weird thing here, she wants a certain way. Right. Sometimes it could just be a matter of different opinions. Sometimes it could be, oh, I really would have preferred if instead of doing a group shot of four of us in a picture, I would have preferred just to have headshots. I don't always say it so uh, politely. Right, right. But that is very black and white. You're the boss. Mm -hmm. And even if, and I think, you know, and Nicole, tell me if I'm wrong, but that's what I'm hearing her saying. Sometimes it could be, yeah, I do think that you're wrong in my professional opinion. I think that it would look better if we did the group shop, but no problem. You're the boss. In other cases, though, if you're saying that I disagree with your judgment on a specific topic, that sometimes is more personal. Nicole, I don't. Th- sorry for interrupting. Mm-hmm. Nicole, I don't think you thought this through. That's mm-hmm. hard to hear. It is right. Sure, sure. Because what's the, I'm trying to figure out the difference. Trust me, there's something to this. What's the difference between feedback around performance 
and feedback around something that feels more personal. Yeah, I think there's a difference between criticizing maybe a choice that I made or the way that I went about doing something compared to criticizing the amount of work I put into something. Wow. Or level of care. The level of care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. You and I have talked about that for years. Say it, the thing, the worst thing that I say sometimes, this isn't, by the way, me, it's any Oh, no, but this happens everywhere. We all have spouses and friends, and we hear they're dealing with the same thing, and that's hopefully what we're doing here with the Leadership Hour is giving folks who are either giving that feedback or on the receiving end of that feedback. What's the thing I say that really burns you? Just the one thing? (laughs) (laughs) Mary, we didn't need that. Uh, Here's what it is. No. Uh, Mm-hmm. You, I don't think you guys cared enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's probably the worst thing I could be told. Absolutely. It's about the worst, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why I say that. Yeah, but you really don't anymore, and that's to because your credit. Because the feedback I got back was, what's well, up with that? Well, it's not productive. It's not productive no, it's at all. Not. You can't question. Now, we have had people on our team that we have in the past that's question their Nicole. level of caring, <laughs> or anyone else and they are not on our team anymore, and right. for good reason. But when you do have such a talented group of people who are dedicated, committed, and do care— you can't question their level of caring when giving feedback. But can you, Nicole? Mary's. I really respect Mary's point of view on this. But can I question the way one was thinking things through and ask the question? And with all candor, were you being stra- not you or anyone? But I have had this conversation with you. Are you being strategic enough in your thinking and dare I say connecting the dots? Mary, like, and I used to. You know that phrase. Mm-hmm. Are we connecting the dots? Are we thinking? strategically, or are we just going from assignment to assignment, step to step? Go ahead. I think that's a great check that you can give to people sometimes. And there are certain situations where it does feel like once in a while you will get into a habit of just doing the assignment and moving on. We call it autopilot. Right, exactly. (laughs) But having somebody say, was that really the most strategic way to do it, is a nice check sometimes. And of course, it's hard to hear, but that should be an opportunity to say, I need to just be a little bit more strategic. My last question for you to freely go. By the way, great job here on the Leadership Hour. Thank you. Were you nervous coming in? Oh, I was extremely nervous. (laughs) Seriously? Interviewing is very nerve-wracking, yes. But it's a conversation. Hold on, you already got the job. (laughs) Yes. Um, It's interesting. You see this as interviewing. Interviewing. Yes. Does it feel right now like you're... No, this is, feels more like a conversation. Easier than I expected. We'll talk about this on another segment, but it's interesting to me. Anticipatory anxiety mm-hmm. is a subject that I've studied a lot. The anticipation of something, whether oh, yeah. it's getting a needle or giving a presentation or doing a media thing or whatever it is, the anticipation of it is much worse than the actual experience. Last question. Because of all the coaching, mentoring, challenges, situations you've been in, yada, yada, blah, 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 blah. At a certain point when I get out of this game and Mary goes wherever she's going to go into a more comfortable uh, Warmer life, environment. Warmer <laughs> environment. You will be the leader. You will be the one. You'll have other leaders with you, but you'll be the one. To what degree have these experiences and will they, in your opinion, influence the way you lead to do some of the things you've learned? and not some of the things you've experienced. Oh, it's every experience is going to be influential for the rest of my life, even in my personal life. From the smallest things of just working one-on-one with people to working on a team to, of course, producing a really, really big special, things like that are all things that I will learn from. And sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's really not easy to learn from the mistakes that I've made. But every experience has to lead somewhere and it has to lead to being coming a good leader. Finally, being as nice as you are, (laughs) and you are nice, you'll admit that. I hope people think I'm nice. (laughs) You're very nice. Do you believe... Pandora's box, I do not want to Oh, I know where you're going, and this is a Do you believe you have what it takes to make really tough decisions and confront 
people in a way that makes them very uncomfortable and potentially not like you? That's a great question. I would say that right now I would still be growing towards that position. But in the future, I do hope to be able to come to the place where I can feel comfortable making the decision and telling people what needs to be told. But that, Even if they're peeved? And by the way, I'm not yeah. talking about being nasty to people or anything like that. Oh, I know. And I've heard lots of people have to make people cry, make fire people. No, so, I don't want to I mean, make anyone no, cry. But, I mean, that's the extreme of it. And I know that it happens, it happens being a leader. I know that it does. But I aspire to be one one day, so it has to happen. It has well, you to don't come have to have it. it all together at 25. No, I'm not. <laughs> She's pretty close, though. Yeah. She's pretty close. Do you have fun? Yes. I appreciate it. You taking in consideration me being here. You have a great future. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Mary. Let's take a break from the Leadership Hour. This is Steve Adubato, Mary Gamm on AM 970. Let's do it on our podcast. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, be back after this. Okay. Nice. <laughs> this is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. That's stand-deliver.com. This edition of the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour has been made possible by New Jersey Resources. Welcome back to the Leadership Hour with Steve Adubato and Mary Gamba. That was a compelling, interesting, unexpected in some ways conversation with Nicole Swinnerton, who is one of the top young so-called millennial leaders we have on our team. We're talking about millennials and leadership and motivating them and burnout and how are they different from the rest of us who have passed that age a while ago. What did you take from it, Mary Gamba? I truly enjoyed hearing her perspective. I was surprised in that she said that she embraces the title millennial, that she almost wears it as a badge of pride, that I am a millennial, I am of this age group, of talented young professionals who are really out there proving themselves professionally and personally every single day. Because for me, again, being a 40-something, obviously not a millennial, I have always heard millennial with negative attached to it, right? That he or she is a millennial, so they're entitled, or he or she is a millennial, so they don't work as hard, or they feel like they do need more flexibility, which was something that Nicole had said that millennials do appreciate, that ability to have flexible work schedules. But it helped to open my eyes and mind about the topic of millennials, because I think in a way... You and I have talked about this before, that we do need to get more creative and innovative about the way that we approach our own work days and being flexible Break down in terms what that means. Well, we have talked because about Because we actually have four mm-hmm. of our ten person team who are in fact in that age group. Yeah, absolutely. So it is about whether it's flex time, whether it's about letting people work from home if it's better for them because they're either new parents, they have a long commute. We've done that with certain people on our team. I think 15 years ago, I think you and I would have been a lot more, I don't want to say not confident, but I think I would have questioned the ability of somebody to truly work from home and are they really doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I've learned a ton from the younger generation that with the technology that they've grown up with, they've learned to adapt and can work from Starbucks. They can work from their car. They could work from their home office. And, and be- oh, Excuse me for interrupting me. Isn't there something mm-hmm. to be said? I don't play devil's advocate. Yeah. First of all, in some ways, we've convinced ourselves that being in the office means we have control. Mm-hmm. If you're in the office, mm-hmm. I have control. Yeah. I really know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. When, in fact, you could be sitting in your office doing oh, whatever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's and, number one. Yeah. Number two. What is to be said about physically being in the same place in terms of a leader's job is to create an environment for a team to collaborate, engage each other, be connected to each other? Because otherwise, why would we ever have an office? Right. There are pros and cons. 
in my professional opinion and from experience, having that face-to-face interaction, even if it's not every day, you're not in the office every day. No, that is true. Because you're out at meetings and seminars and, you know, you're not out, out on the golf course or anything like that. Sometimes you are and that's okay Sometimes as well. I am, but it's not like I'm watching right. reality TV exactly. during the day. Nor, I do nor... it at night. <laughs> God, I'm sorry. And for this new generation, I believe they have really helped us to see things from a different perspective and, and realize that that you can be just as, if not, more productive by not losing that hour and 15-minute commute each way. Oftentimes, I just send out an email in the morning. I'm working from home because I have a lot of writing to do. I get back two and a half hours of actual work time. Let's make it clear. You're on the Garden State Garden Parkway. Garden State Parkway. So if you're listening now I'm on a Sunday faces. at 2 p.m., uh, not much traffic on Sundays at 2 p.m. But, yeah, we've talked about this here before. I have an 18-mile commute. And at minimum, it's 50 minutes. That's a good day to go 18 miles. And most days, the commute is an hour and 15 minutes. As productive as you are, Mm -hmm. it is still hard to do because you have to drive. Yeah, exactly. And now I don't hate it either because certain times you need that time to diffuse after a long work day. I use that time to catch up on phone calls with family, friends. But other times when you know that you really have a lot of work and writing to get done, it's just more productive to work from a home office and work remotely. So going back to the millennial thing. Mm -hmm. So for those of us in leadership positions, I think the message is we have to be more flexible. Yep. We have to be more innovative. We can't say, well, that's the way it's going to be because it's my company. Right. I make the rules. These have been the rules. Mm-hmm. You could do it, but how challenging would it be recruiting, retaining, motivating, engaging younger people mm-hmm. is the message here. Yeah, it would be extremely challenging. And one of the challenges for us as leaders leading such a young group of professionals is really being open-minded and listening. One of the greatest leadership skills that I've learned through the years is the ability to truly listen. And again, we all say we hear what you're saying, but are you really listening? Are you really internalizing what that person is doing? Got it. Listen, we've got about seven minutes left on this show. Uh, Steve Arbato with Mary Gamba. I want to shift gears. Mm-hmm. I've always said, and I promised listeners on AM 970 as well as those listening on our podcast, that this is not a show about politics. It's not about public policy. You can catch our programming on the PBS side for that particularly state of affairs, which is the second half hour of the leadership hour. But there was an article in the New York Times recently that examined President Trump's leadership style. And the basic premise of the article was and is this, that President Trump's leadership challenges as president largely come from the fact that what he led, Mm -hmm. what he has led up until this point, is a largely family-owned, family-run, small group of people, many of them related, who he has had total, if not total, close to total, control over. And that the pushback he got was not significant, feedback, criticism, whatever you want to call it, and that his need to negotiate, compromise, be flexible, listen to others, isn't even close to what it requires to be the leader of the free world, President of the United States. Developing a team has been hard. He's lost over 80% of the people who started working for him. That's high by any standard, including right now as we speak, not a permanent chief of staff. Here's my question. I don't really care who you voted for, who you can vote for in 2020, not the point. Not to mention he could act the way he wanted to act in his company because it was his. You can't pull that when you're relationship building, Congress, other members of the cabinet, other leaders of the free world, the media. You don't have the same control. How much do you think the president struggles in part because he hasn't adapted to this very different leadership role? 
tremendously. What you had just laid out is, I think, the overall reason this why— This isn't even about Donald Trump. And it's not. And it, it's a reason why so many leaders, CEOs, COOs, managers struggle— because as a true leader, you're a convener. You are bringing people together, whether it's around a boardroom table, whether it's, as you had said, in Congress or wherever, to talk about solutions. And there's not always one right approach. And as you said, with Donald Trump, oftentimes it's his way or the highway. If I don't get a wall, mm -hmm. I will shut the government down and I will own the shutdown. Yeah. Things have evolved since then. That is a way right. of leading. And it's not all bad. Now, yeah. There's nothing's all anything. Right, exactly. Anything. And I do believe that he is trying to do what has worked for him in the past with his companies. He's trying to use that same tactic of, I know this is what is right for no, our country. No, I know I'm right. Yeah, I know. I, I I'm, was, I'm also smarter than the generals. Yeah, exactly. Where does that become to be a problem? Forget about your politics. Right. Not your anyone's. Mm -hmm. no, Where no. does I know better than every anyone? Because most what's of the, the what's the catch there? Well, most of the best and and most effective leaders have been very confident and have been a very be said for that. bordering on arrogant. I believe in whatever it is. Gotta it could do be it. a product. It could be a company. It could be whatever the it is. And he is doing that, but as the president of the United States. And that's where that gray area comes in. Where's the place for negotiation and compromise? That's where he's lacking as a leader. Is being a leader the same as being the boss? No, and it, it should never be. It should be of hearing other ideas considering that doesn't always mean that you're going to take no. that person's ideas, but it's hearing, letting those people know that they've been heard, but I'm going to go in this other direction and here's why. If you were advising the president, <laughs> you advise me all the time, you advise others, mm -hmm. people seek your advice. What advice would you give him about leadership right now? Forget about politics and policy. Well, it's funny because if I could speak to him directly- Just the two of you. He needs to put his ego aside. Just because you said you were going to get something done. And I'm going to build that wall. And I think that's where he's at right now. He As wants his legacy to be that I said that I was going to get this done. What's wrong with that, keeping your commitment? It's fine to a point when it becomes harmful to the bottom line of the country, when it becomes hurtful to the bottom line of the organization. If you are so determined to do what you said you were going to do just to do it, he's totally forgot about he, why no, he, he even— No, he believes. Say yeah. believes. But say now, as mm -hmm. we speak, 800,000 yeah. federal workers, and hopefully they'll be working, but right. unintended consequences? And there is going to be roadkill along the yes. way sometimes, okay? If you're truly going to be a great leader, you may have to cut back on a budget. You Agreed. may not be able to do bonuses. Agreed. So that is We've had to do that. We've had company, to do that. And you How may, is this different, potentially? It's different when it's on a such larger scale. And when I truly believe that now he is just doing it almost to be spiteful, just we, because— We don't know that for sure. Wait, no, we no, no, but I'm saying, no, I, no, we don't know motives, but I'm saying because of ego, we've all seen him on The Apprentice, and I still can't believe the president of our United States was on Apprentice. But, but that's entertaining. But, How is this different than that? It is How is being the leader of our country in the free world different than being the star of the quote-unquote— Apprentice so-called right. reality because show. Because you, you do need to put your ego aside at certain points and listen to the people that you have put into those positions of authority, you know, within the government. How you about if they tell me what I don't want to hear? You need to be more open-minded as a leader. You can't just shut down and just say, I'm going to do what I'm going to do because human you beings. Could, but yeah, but it does. It impacts when it's impacting others in a such a horrific way. I think that's when a leader does need to step back. And the only other thing I want to say about this as time's running out is I think 
it becomes hard to get really talented, smart, creative, mm-hmm. confident, independent people to work for you. And not to mention the this young adults. This is not adults. about Trump. It's about anyone. No, no. And I think that's that the thing. And the young adults and our kids and our kids' kids that are going to really learn about this, either they're living it now because they're old enough to understand or they're going to see it later in history books. And what lesson are you leaving? And that's, again, going back to business. You want to look to see the legacy that you're leaving behind. And if your own ego gets in the way of doing something really great, that's when you're going to run into problems. And the final thing I want to say about this, to me, when I wrote the book Lessons in Leadership, is to write about everyone, including myself and my own significant failures as a leader, as an opportunity for others to learn what are the lessons in it. And I don't really know all the lessons as a student and a teacher and a coach and a radio host talks about leadership. I'm not sure of all the leadership lessons that Donald Trump as president offers us, but I'll say this. He's not alone. I know that I will cop to having my quote-unquote ego big time in the way of my ability to be an effective leader because I know I'm right. Not in everything, but when I do, don't move me off that. So for those of you who think this is about the president himself, no, it's about the lessons we can learn when our ego Mm -hmm. gets in the way of getting the best possible outcome with the least possible roadkill. It's the only best way I can say it. So listen, Mary Gamma, thank you so much for adding so much to the Leadership Hour. Uh, Brian Berdour and your team, thank you for making it happen. This is the Leadership Hour. I'm Steve Adubato. Catch us on AM 970, The Answer, every uh, weekend, and also on our podcast. Catch you next time. This is Mary Gamba. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, where we look at the most pressing issues facing the state of New Jersey. This edition of the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour has been made possible by New Jersey Resources. At Englewood Health, we believe that all citizens need to be informed about the health care issues that affect their lives. That's why we're proud to support important health care programming produced by the Caucus Educational Corporation and their partners in public television. Funding for this edition of State of Affairs with Steve Adubato has been provided by the Turrell Fund, supporting right from the start NJ, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the PNC Foundation, which supports early childhood education through Grow Up Great, a multi-year initiative to help prepare children from birth to age five for success in school and life. St. Joseph's Health, a passion for healing. It's what's inside us. Rowan University, educating New Jersey leaders, partnering with New Jersey businesses, transforming New Jersey's future. NJM Insurance Group. And by MD Advantage Insurance Company of New Jersey. Hi, I'm Steve Adubato. We're in Morven, in the Morven Museum and Gardens. We are honored to be joined by the First Lady of the great state of New Jersey, uh, Tammy Snyder. Murphy, good to see you. Thank you for having me. This is an important night. Um, We're not just hanging around at Morven. This is a night to talk about uh, adverse childhood experiences. Uh, A group of folks are getting together as a major grant, a $2 million seed grant from the Burke Foundation, the Nicholson Foundation, to deal with um, these issues around adverse childhood experiences. You care deeply about these children, don't you? Mm-hmm. I do. Talk I do. About these, what, what, your interpretation of these adverse experiences. We got the clinicians to talk about it, but sure. you care deeply. 
well, I would say, you know, these are experiences that um, happen to probably all of us. Um, from what I understand, every two out of three people who you meet have experienced at least one of these horrible uh, situations. And you, if you think about what they are, what is it? It's, it's physical abuse, physical neglect. It's mental abuse and neglect. It's domestic violence. It's, uh, you know, incarceration. It's sexual abuse. It's sexual right. abuse. I mean, it, there's, there's 10 of these adverse um, uh, childhood um, experiences. And, and uh, it's pretty scary to think that two out of three of us have, have, uh, have endured at least one of these. I was talking to the First Lady before we got on the air about our initiative. And you'll see the website uh, on the air, our Right From The Start initiative, funded by um, Terrell and Nicholson and some others. The state government, the Murphy administration, cares deeply about children birth to three. Yes. And their caregivers. Sure. Talk about it. Uh, well, I'd say that, you know, we heard very early on, um, back in January or February, that New Jersey was ranked 45th out of 50th in terms of uh, maternal deaths in the first year of a child's life. And when you dig down, you realize that if you are uh, a a, you know, it's, it's, it breaks down very, very much along um, racial lines. And if you are a, if you're a black child born in the state of New Jersey, your chances of dying in the first year of life are three times greater than that of a white child. If you're a black mother giving birth in New Jersey, your chances of dying in that child's first year of life are five times greater than that of a white woman's. So given that I'm a mother of four, and Phil is the father of four, um, clearly there's a problem. And so I've been digging in ever since then. And the, the whole, you know, all these things are overlapping. Uh, so the adverse childhood experiences um, is, is yet another factor that plays into this whole problem that we're experiencing here in New Jersey. It's so interesting. As First Lady, you, you could be involved in a lot of things, um, but you choose, I mean, you're involved in a lot of energy policy and environmental policy. But you choose to really put a lot of attention into this area. I know there are commissioners, uh, members of the governor's cabinet who we'll be talking to tonight, and we've talked to it other times if you look on our website on Right From The Start. But you chose to focus on this, and it matters that the First Lady is as involved as you are. Because? I think that uh, the way that I can help is by bringing a spotlight onto this and convening people. Uh, I've traveled around the state of New Jersey literally everywhere. I've met with, with people in foundations, people who are providers, NGOs, healthcare systems, uh, nurse practitioners, doulas. I mean, I have seen it all, all around New Jersey. And the most interesting or the most striking uh, tone that I found is a lot of these different providers or people are, are interested in fixing this problem. They're, they are passionate about fixing it. But they each are in their own little silo. So if, they, if someone finds a best practice over here, like down south at Camden, for example, someone up north might be doing the exact same thing, and they may be years behind or maybe doing some, uh, approaching it in a different way, and they aren't getting the benefit of working together. Does it feel like, to some extent, that we're not, I don't know, I could get into a philosophical discussion, that we're sometimes we're not really one state and sharing a lot of information with each other, and, and that we are bifurcated in a lot of ways? Well, I'm not. I'm not sure if I would, uh, the answer, the short answer is yes, but I would also say, you know, even, even within the administration, you know, we started out with, with two cabinet members 
who were pretty obvious, Department of Health and Division of Children and Family Services, we thought, okay, those those two make sense. They they have overlap here. It's more than that, though, right? But that's if there's now 12 different cabinet members involved in this infant and maternal. 12. Health. 12. Because if you think about it, it's 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 everything from insurance to incarceration to food um, access right. to health care um, to um, I'm just trying to think of transportation. I mean, all of these things are coming together and working against. Uh, families and and um, mothers and their children. By the way, we talked to the Attorney General today. I would argue that there are legal issues as well. Probably are. There probably are. So, so in many ways, because there are so many players, if mm -hmm. you will, in the Murphy administration involved in these issues, does that make it more challenging or a greater opportunity? I think it's a greater opportunity. Talk about that. It's a greater opportunity because everyone wants to fix this. There's not one person who said, "Sorry, I'm not available for that meeting." So we, we've had, we started off, like I say, there were just three of us um, in the administration. We've now expanded, when we have these meetings, you know, are kind of a, a review of where we are and what we can do next, everyone shows up. Mm. And it's, it's, more, um, it's more a factor of kind of running out of space in the room as opposed to having a lack of interest or a lack of willingness to work together. We recently, I recently had a summit at Drumthwacket uh, and invited all of these different people from all around the state and had each had members from each of the different cabinets who were involved at different tables. Um, we had we had twelve tables with twelve topics. Each table had questions they had to answer, and um, they were working not in not as much which is normal, like all the foundations sitting at one table or all the doulas sitting at one table. I mixed everybody up. You did. You said let's. Yes. Integrate folks. Let's yes. mingle. Let's be. That's exactly. That's what I mean when I say I can convene people. You're so. a facilitator. <laughs> a facilitator. Really? Yeah, maybe. So, so we, so we, uh, so each table had their own set of questions, and they had to come up with. Um, they could talk for a while, and then at the end, they had to come up with kind of short, medium, and long-term solutions or problems that they couldn't they couldn't grapple with, and it was fascinating. It was really fascinating. It, the the summit only lasted um, two or three hours. And everybody was was wishing that it was longer, but I would argue that I'm not sure anyone would have shown up if I'd said it was an all-day <laughs> event. But it really it really worked, and we've taken a lot of those suggestions back into the administration now. And we're trying to figure out what can we do, how can we take these all, put them together, and come out with the best possible answer. In the time we have with you, because I know there are a lot of other people I want to talk to. I'm curious sure. about this. You and the governor um, have a fascinating not, fascination not just about people, but about policy. Right? about making a difference for people yes. through public policy. Did you both know that early on? I, I can't, I, I mean, I think Phil has always been interested in policy. I mean, he's followed it for his entire life. I would say for me, uh, I, you know, when I meet someone and I can find uh, a lot of, let me, let me put it this way. Phil and I have conversations all the time that'll go like this. This makes, this seems to make a lot of sense. Don't you think so? Hold, hold on, who's saying it? Wait, I need Phil to will say it or I'll say it. I'll say, this kind of makes sense, this notion, let's go in X direction. Don't you think? And Phil will say, yeah, why don't you think it's been done before? Or, this doesn't make sense, why do you think we're doing it? So we spend a lot of time just trying to say, you know, very basic, you know, kind of just bringing basic thoughts and impulses to everyday experiences and trying to find the best way forward. And, and a lot of times I think that if we all are, you know, thoughtful human beings, we can probably move the needle a little bit faster than, than if we get caught up in trying to figure out who said what to whom. Which is not productive. No. I want to thank you very much, Ioana, by joining us here at Morven.
talking about these most important issues um, affecting our most vulnerable children. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you. To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD. And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. Hi, this is Steve Adubato. We're at uh, Morven Museum and Gardens for a conference, an important meeting on the subject of overcoming childhood adversity and trauma. A whole range of people from across the state, from across the nation, coming to talk about um, children who are affected by toxic stress, if you will, and two of the experts that are joining us here tonight are two longtime friends who have been with us before. Uh, Mary and Christopher, Vice President of Community Health at Horizon Blue Cross and Blue Shield in New Jersey, and Dave Huber, CFO at Horizon. Good to see both of you. Good to see you as well. We were, we were talking right before we got on the air. The issues we're talking about, um, adverse childhood um, impact of, of these events, these, these t horrific events, if you will, otherwise known as ACEs, if you will, right? That's right. Why, was it, why are they a community health issue? Well, they're a community health issue because many of the issues derive from the community and the neighborhood and the blocks in which children live. It's their home that's a, a, an impact, their neighborhoods, their schools. So that's why the solution has to be grassroots and community-based. And what's interesting about this is that because there are some corporations, foundations that are here, and by the way, there's $2 million being put up of seed money from the Nicholson Foundation, from the Burke Foundation to deal with this issue. But Horizon has been very much involved in a whole range of um, public spirited efforts, including supporting those of us in public broadcasting. But why is this an issue? These issues around um, adverse childhood effects, right? Uh, these experiences, if you will. Why is it a Horizon issue? I wouldn't say it's a Horizon issue. Why is it an issue? Society issue. Deep, deep, deep why do we about? care about this? Yeah. We're in the middle of everything, right? We work with the hospitals, the doctors the members, the community health workers. We got 50% market share. We can make a difference. And we're doing a lot of great things already. Marianne can tell you about that. We think we can take ACEs, integrate it into what we're already doing, and make a big difference for a ton of people. And we're happy to do it. We think it's our responsibility, not alone, but together. We got to collaborate. It's the only way. Talk about this, the ACEs, as they've talked about, adverse childhood experiences. Again, let's try to be a little more specific. There are 10 of them that, that, that I've read about. Are we talking about if a, if a child has a parent with a substance abuse problem, if a, parent, a child has a parent or parents who are, uh, there's a lot of domestic strife or there's divorce or separation or uh, what other kinds of things are we talking about? Um, it could be the loss of a parent, loss of a sibling, grandparent, violence in neighborhoods, um, poverty. All of those come together to really create the constellation of factors that put children's health at risk in the moment. But I think to your earlier question, why is it important? Because we know that ACEs unaddressed have lifelong impacts on people's physical and, and mental health status. Break it down a little bit. We're talking about heart. The issue of heart disease keeps coming up 
as well as cancer, correct? Yes, heart disease, cancer. Because any of these stressors, these toxic stressors, impact negatively the body because it kind of um, drops your immune system, right? Because the immune system is directed toward the stress and it also stimulates your central nervous system in ways that cause stress on the heart, um, on your immune system, um, frankly, on every aspect of your body because that when that stress happens, it triggers the sympathetic nervous system mm-hmm. that then impacts every part of the body. So imagine children not knowing what to do, not knowing how to frame those issues. And so they just be begin to integrate that stress without the tools to know how to cope with it. And that's what we really aim to address. Mm. Let's follow up on this. There are economic considerations here as well. Talk about them a little bit. Without a doubt. Uh, We're on the movement toward value-based care, right? The old model was people get sick and then we pay claims. Pay for service. Pay for service. Moving away. Moving away. Value-based care. Get a flu shot, don't get the flu. This is the same thing. And traditionally, health insurers haven't really been involved in social determinants, what Marianne's talking about, it's groundbreaking. Social determinants of health. Social determinants of health, it's groundbreaking. But we're talking about working with community health workers. We're talking about navigating the system. You get sick, you're not used to navigating the system. How do I find a good doctor? How do I get an appointment? How do I get there? We drive people to appointments. Uh, All of that, there's a lot of things that cause issues and there's a lot of people out there aren't getting the care that they need and they don't know where to start so we think we could help it's interesting that uh, horizon's also partnering with one of the other entities we know well rwj barnabas health on these yes. social determinants of health is that a model that's happening more and more that organizations like yours uh health insurance providers and and healthcare providers, hospital systems are collaborating on these issues? Yes, we had an, really an amazing collaboration in the city of Newark and four zip codes with Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas, where we co-funded community health workers to address social determinants, the burden of where people live having such an impact on overall health. And social determinants, Dave talked about it and I've talked about it, but I don't want to assume people know what we're talking about. So social determinants are, so it's based on the theory that where I live has more to do with my overall health than anything else. My zip code. My zip code, my block, my neighborhood. And so it's transportation, food insecurity, violence, even ability to have housing. How does housing impact what I do with my income, how do I distribute that? And so we have come together in an amazing program where we actually have an integrated team, both from Horizon and Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas, engaging the community, funding community health workers who are trusted and relevant to our members who are disproportionately impacted by social determinants. And over the next three years, we will be rolling that program now in four zip codes out to about 75 zip codes. It is powerful, and and I'm curious about this. I mentioned the economic part. Other than making a difference in people's lives, does this have the potential, Dave, to actually lower overall healthcare costs? Without a doubt. Um, Value-based care. Think about getting a flu shot versus waiting until you get the flu and getting admitted to the hospital. This is the same thing. We think if we can help people early on, help people stay healthy, they're going to be out of the hospital. Uh, they're going to go see their doctor when they ought to see their doctor. Preventive care pay off, pays off big time at the end of the day. We believe that there's a real ROI in this uh, for us. We are doing it because it's the right thing to do, but we do think there's an ROI in it for us too. And finally, as it relates to ACEs, um, 
the whole question of early intervention mm -hmm. is also part of what Dave's talking about as well. Absolutely. These adverse childhood experiences, stepping in earlier as opposed to saying, well, yeah, yeah. You'll get through it, and, or, or just ignoring it as a society is incredibly irresponsible, not to mention incredibly expensive. Absolutely, and that's why as we roll out this, our value-based strategy and our social determinant strategy, we will integrate the training to identify ACEs into every person that touches that child. So the identification is immediate, right. and the intervention is immediate as well. I want to thank you both for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank, thank you, you, Steve. To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD, And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. We are thrilled once again to be joined by Christine Norbert Beyer, who is Commissioner of New Jersey Department of Children and Families. Good to see you, Commissioner. Yeah, thank you. Nice to be here. This subject, right, there's research about this. There's a report coming yeah. out. There's some private funding from a couple of foundations, the Burke Foundation, the Nicholson Foundation, $2 million of seed money to be involved in this. Yeah. Um, why are these horrific experiences for children, for children so important? To well, all of us. I was going to say, it's important because it's not specific to any one group. Um, you know, when we think about child abuse and adversity, you know, that happens in childhood, you know, lots of times it's easier to think it's happening to someone else or it happens to, you know, those people over there, when in reality what the study showed, the ACES study, is that... Um, you know, adversity in childhood really is very prevalent and um, it touches everybody. I think the original study said 67% right. of individuals have at least one adversity in their childhood. By the way, when the commissioner re refers to ACEs, that is in fact adverse childhood experiences yeah, as a sorry. study yeah. about this. <clears throat> and by the way, for those, it's interesting, you were with us the first time on State of Affairs. You talked about your department mm -hmm. and part of what is going on is trying to educate the public as to who you are, yeah. what you do, and why it matters. How has that evolved over the last, say, six months? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it continues to evolve, and um, there's a lot of work that we've been doing, that I've been doing out meeting with families, meeting with constituents. Um, I started a listening tour. And so really having the opportunity to listen directly to the families that we serve every day, the youth that we serve who's, you know, receive our services or, um, you know, live in some of the programs um, that we fund throughout the state, you know, we've, I've been, in getting to hear from them, it really has been eye-opening. Um, and while um, the services, I think, are um, really helpful for those families, um, you know, I've, what I'm finding is it's not enough. There's not enough. What are you looking for from the department? Um, you know, I think... Or from government overall? I think most times when people think about um, the work that we do in our department, uh, they do think child abuse and neglect, and so it's about... It's you a know, big piece of it, but not the totality well, of it. that's right, and that's some of what we talked about. And so, you know, my opportunity now to hear from families has really been about... Um, that they're struggling financially, that, um, you know, I think you have had on other shows about child care. And, That's right. That's um, part of our know. commissioner, great segue. Yeah. The Right from the Start NJ initiative, you'll see it up right there, birth to three. 
Yeah. And, and, yeah. You, and you and, and Carol Johnson, other members of the administration, we talked to the Commissioner of Health yeah. today as well, okay. Dr. Hall. several agencies, several departments in state government responsible for children in one way or another, right? Absolutely, yeah. And the Department of Education, That's I would right. say, you know, that we partner together probably four or five departments um, pretty significantly on some really serious issues that impact children, and, excuse me, children and families. And that includes this ACEs issue. It's interesting. It doesn't fall simply into your department. No, I think that, you know, we work to prevent ACEs. We work to prevent child abuse through prevention initiatives and prevention efforts. Um, but yeah, it's not. I mean, it's a health crisis, you know, toxic stress, um, how that impacts children. It impacts their ability to learn. And so the work that we then um, do with the Department of Education um, and our other partners in the community, it's a public health crisis. And so it's not one department is you know, not going to solve this. We were talking to the First Lady uh, about this issue as well. And she seems uh, extremely engaged and interested. Yeah. There are several members of the administration mm -hmm. here tonight. Why is a night like this? We're folks in the private sector mm -hmm. together, foundations, corporations, and leaders in government like yourself and the First Lady here. What do you expect out of a night like this? Well, I think it raises awareness that it's not, you know, it's not just a government issue, um, that it's really public-private partnership. And, you know, that's the way I think that we do some of our best work, and that's how we're going to get the best results for the residents of our state. Um, and, you know, we're going to improve outcomes for children is... Um, is through public-private partnership. And some of the, you know, the best... Um, things that I've been involved with in the past, both in New Jersey and, you know, working nationally, was when public and private comes together. So when it comes to ACEs, uh, um, adverse childhood um, situations, adverse childhood experiences, if you will, do you see this commissioner as, I don't want to overstate it, an, a national epidemic? Um, I don't know that is it's it a, a crisis. Do you know what? It's, um, it's a significant issue that needs to be addressed. I think there's a moral imperative around addressing ACEs. You I mean, know, for all of us. For across the country. Someone says, yeah. that's not my kid, that's not good enough. Do you know what? Because it impacts every child. It's not just kids who are involved with protective services. There are majority of families um, where children are living in adversity every day, they're living with toxic stress every day, um, that never rise to the attention or the level of our department. And I think that's what's so powerful about this, is that it's not those people over there, it's us in this room. Well, if 67% um, have uh, at least one childhood, yeah, adversity in childhood. The majority have. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and there's a lot of it before I, you know, because I know there are a whole range of other things going on tonight, including the event we want to be sensitive to the commissioner's time. What, what I'm curious about is you, you try to prevent is one thing, but mm -hmm. then to deal with, to treat, to help, it's the other part of it, right? Absolutely. I think we were having a conversation earlier today uh, with Dr. Burke Harris, and she was saying it's kind of a chicken and the egg you situation. You wrote a very compelling book on this subject. Oh, right. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hearing her speak about this, you know, can really, I think, convert a lot of people to why this topic is so important. Um, but it really is kind of a chicken and the egg thing where... Um, you know, we need to treat, we need to try and prevent ACEs, but then we also need to treat them. And it's kind of like what comes first. If we don't help individuals as children um, have their ACEs mitigated um, or someone step in to try and help them resolve issues and, you know, they grow up to be adults that um, then have Are they more health likely? issues or, and then, you know, the cycle can repeat. 
of adverse childhood experiences, yeah, yeah. the cycle continues. Yeah, yeah. Um, Commissioner, I want to thank you for joining us. And uh, thank you. It, like you said, it's interesting. There are many departments, many members of the cabinet, Absolutely. governor's cabinet dealing with this issue, and we appreciate you joining us again. Yeah, thank you so much. You got it. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation, celebrating over 30 years of broadcast excellence. Funding for this edition of State of Affairs with Steve Adubato has been provided by the Turrell Fund, supporting right from the start NJ, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the PNC Foundation, St. Joseph's Health, Rowan University, NJM Insurance Group, and by MD Advantage Insurance Company of New Jersey. Promotional support provided by the New Jersey Business and Industry Association and by Jaffe Communications, where business, media, and government converge in New Jersey. NJM Insurance Company has been serving New Jersey policyholders for more than 100 years. But just who are NJM's policyholders? They're the men and women who teach our children, the public sector employees who maintain our infrastructure, the workers who craft our manufactured goods, and New Jersey's next generation of leaders, the people who make our state a great place to call home. NJM, we've got New Jersey covered.